Now, Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, difficult though it can be at times to, in the way it confronts our culture and confronts us as part of our culture. Our Lord, culture keeps changing. It's different from nation to nation, generation to generation. So, Lord, help us not to trust everything our culture says, but help us to trust the firm and steady, um, the sure testimony of your word about what's good for us, your creatures. So help us particularly today in this difficult, um, highly charged topic. Help me to speak clearly and lovingly and and, uh, gently in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2017, there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald that I kept, and I'm going to put up a photo for you with help of AV. Um, A dental office x-ray reveals a four-inch nail embedded in the skull of Patrick Lawler. There he is. And a dentist found the source of the toothache Patrick Lawler was complaining about on the roof of his mouth. I'll I'll read reading the article. A 10-centimetre nail the construction construction worker had unknowingly embedded in his skull six days earlier. A nail gun backfired on Lawler, aged 23, on January 6 while working in Breckenridge, a ski resort town in central Colorado mountains. The tool sent a nail into a piece of wood nearby, but Lawler didn't realise a second nail had shot through his mouth. Following the, inc- the accident, Lawler had what he thought was a minor toothache and blurry vision. On Wednesday, after painkillers and ice didn't ease the pain, he went to a dental office where his wife, Katerina, works. Katerina said, we are all friends, so I thought the dentists were joking. Then the doctor came out and said, there's really a nail. Patrick just broke down. I mean, he'd been eating ice cream to help the swelling. What a shocking discovery. He broke down when hearing the news. You've got a nail in your noggin. It seemed like bad news. But because it was so essential to hear, it was actually good news. We found the cause of your pain that wouldn't have gone away had we not found it. You've got a nail in your head and we can remove it. The Christian gospel of Jesus coming into the world to save sinners is a bit like that. When God tells us we've got a problem, that's part of the good news that we're to be bold with, as we've seen in recent weeks. We need to know and our world needs to know so that we can be cured. Now, in our world, we have, and and in the Bible, we have both the diagnosis. Uh, These are the kind of images that our world deals with. We have the diagnosis and the remedy, painful and even offensive, though it may seem to hear it. Now, of course, uh, the questions Paul anticipates is, well, save us from what? When Paul's saying you need to be saved, the question naturally is, save from what? What's our problem? What's our problem that God the, the Son has come to address? Why is our world in a royal mess, others might ask? Why can't we fix our own problems with more education? Why is the cure of Jesus so necessary? Well, firstly, we must know that God's wrath is being revealed. That's the subject of verses 18 to 21. God's wrath is being revealed. The anger, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness. That word wickedness is literally unrighteousness. We've been seeing righteousness the last two weeks. 
Here's the flip side. So we, we go to God for righteousness, but until we do that, we're in this unrighteousness realm of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. We must know, firstly, from verse 18, that God is personally angry with the world. Uh, Crocodile Dundee, me and God, we're mates. Well, Romans 1 says something different and something quite disturbing and upsetting. God is appropriately angry towards the world. Why? Well, just as good people get angry when evil happens, so too God, who is perfectly good, One author says God's anger is the measured, appropriate response of his goodness towards everything evil. Unlike us, God sees the fullness of evil in its every detail. Imagine having that knowledge of what's going on behind closed doors and being calm about it. It's no wonder there's a problem. God loves the world, but he's rightly grieved and angry at what takes place in Sydney against people he loves in Dremoyne, in homes, in the human heart and mind. Secondly, we must know that humans are experts at suppressing the truth. Truth, we might say with Pontius Pilate, what is truth? Get rid of God, get rid of truth, get rid of right and wrong, and we'll finally be free and happy to live as we please. But this is not a new force against the truth, this human rejection of truth. Back in 1902, and it goes back well beyond that. But in 1902, the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink, in his book Christian Worldview, observes a similar spirit of his own age. He writes, European scholars in the, eight, uh, in the late 1800s were saying, and here's a quote, they established custom, the established customs, God, soul, immortality, have lost their meaning to us. Who still feels the need today to dispute about God's existence? We no longer need God. There is no place for him in our world. Let the old hermits in the forest continue to worship God. We, the youth, know that God is dead and will not be resurrected. The word suppressed there in verse 18 is literally to hold down or keep back, hold back. And so a world denying the truth and God is like a child at the beach building a sand wall hoping to keep the tide back. Or... Frustrated with his beach ball that he just can't get it and keep it underwater. Denying God and truth, the truths he established, is a vain, exhausting, and it's a destructive exercise. But besides being ignorant, it's also sinister, verse 18. It is by their wickedness that the world does this. And so it's more like children happily taking from their parents for decade after decade while it's suiting them to do so, but then when their parents become a burden, choosing to suppress the truth of their existence. I recall meeting some very lonely people in aged care homes. Do you have children? Yes. Do they ever visit you? Well, no, they're they're very busy. They're very busy. They suppress the truth that they have parents to honour while they go about their busy lives. And while human parents are not to be so dishonoured, what about God himself? This is the creator we're talking about. Will we really try to pretend God isn't there and hope all will be well? Would anyone dare be so mad and defiant? Well, hell yes, the world defiantly replies. God, our creator here, diagnoses the illness of the world he made. That in our world's attempt to be godless... Wickedness then results. 
leaving it culpable, leaving it without excuse before him. Look at verse 19. Since why are they culpable? Why are they without excuse? Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Now, people might say, I don't know God exists. I'm not sure about that. God says, I'm making it plain to all humans that I exist. So it's God's testimony against human testimony here. Verse 20, why God? How do we sense God? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, what does this mean? that God is plain to the world in creation. Well, if our world's eyes weren't so darkened and if our hearts weren't so set against God, we would notice in creation every day the creation saying the creator is powerful, good, praiseworthy, amazing. All creatures praise him is what our world is saying. One joy of growing as a Christian is having our eyes increasingly opened to the truth, and we begin to see God everywhere as we mature as Christians. We see God everywhere. This isn't, isn't to be confused with New Age movements that think God is in everything, or idolizing creation like some environmental movements. But God's handiwork is seen everywhere you look, whether you're looking through a microscope or a telescope or everything in between. And my son Darcy is beginning a science degree this year. Uh, environmental biology. And I'm a tad envious, I must say. For three years, he'll be directing his gaze to God's incredible handiwork. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his divine power, his eternal nature, have been clearly seen from what has been made. And so David Attenborough documentaries aren't just to leave us in awe of creation, but in praise to God for creation. Those documentaries can be much praise material for the Christian. The truth is science, the arts, mathematics, all true learning help us and direct us toward theology, biology towards theology. Our creator's handiwork is being observed. But it also works the other way around, that the queen of the sciences, theology, also enables us to integrate all other disciplines of learning and shows us the ethical response to what we see around us and observe. Not godlessness and wickedness, but praise and thanks. And so Christianity finds harmony between all of the arts, the sciences, see them not as competing with theology or with God, with each other, but synthesized answers to the questions, what am I? Why am I here? What is the world and what is our place in it? All the disciplines will give some kind of answer to that. Christianity holds them all wonderfully together. Put simply, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs says. And see, it's opposite there in verse 21, if we deny God. For although they knew God, that is, it's an unusual expression in the Bible to say the whole world knows God, but in a sense, all of the world has a perception, a sense that God is there. For although that they knew God, they nor that neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, the greatest commandment. The greatest act of treason against this God is to deny, deny his place in the universe all of our days. 
The world refuses to glorify, to praise, to thank its creator. It doesn't seem too much to ask from God for his creation to recognize him. And so in the blurb in the bulletin I've produced, I've just written about improving our praise reflex as Christians. The last paragraph there says, Next time you're at the beach or on a bus surrounded by humans, the very best of God's works, let what you see trigger praise. Praise triggers are all around us, ever awaiting our inadequate appreciation. Look at God's world and recognize with a full heart, grace is everywhere. And so the Christians see miracle everywhere, reason to praise everywhere. If you've been coming to church for a while and aren't sure whether you're a Christian yet, one test is to, is to ask yourself, following the logic here, verse 21, do I live with heartfelt praise and thankfulness towards God? Do I express that praise to him? Or am I withholding praise and thanks that God says is his due? One mark of the Christian is gratitude to God. Another one is we address this awesome God as Father. But at least a recognition. We look around and we might think people are pretty good, depending on your circles. People don't deserve God's judgment, some of us might think. But God's basic measure of your lovely little old next-door neighbour is, well, does she, verse 21, praise and thank her God with her life? Or has she, for all of these years, God has given her this bounty where she sensed his existence and yet refused to acknowledge him? In those days, the world had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Treason against the king explains why we're in a royal mess. And so the scriptures would have us see that there are no true atheists, though plenty have convinced themselves they are, suppressing the truth, keeping God out of consciousness and mind. And so next time you're talking with a so-called atheist friend, you might shift the discussion a little by, by asking, well, if I could provide overwhelming evidence for God, and you found that evidence convincing, persuasive, would you want that evidence to be true? And would you like to go through that process? Is it possible you don't want God to exist? And that then affects how you're reading the data. Because God doesn't like, to be, like or deserve to be ignored, denied, wished away. And so point two, the world exchanges God's ways for our own and God gave them over to it. Having spelled out the problem of truth suppression and withholding praise for God, Paul then gives three examples of where that refusal to acknowledge God leads. If revering God is the beginning of wisdom, we can expect all kinds of folly will come with the alternative when God is rejected. We'll see here that God is very restrained in his wrath, in his anger. No global destruction yet. That day will come when every knee will bow before him either praising him or finally acknowledging him in horror. But the judgment now is real. And what does the judgment now look like? Some people think, is it that earthquake? Is it that tsunami? Is it, is it that disease? Uh, answering that question is fraught. But what is clear and what is very general and what is happening now is the, is the type of judgment that's going on here in Romans 1. 
When we exchange God's way for our own, that's the language of verse 23, 25, 26, we exchange God and God's ways for another way, God lets us do it. He gives us over to the sin we want to do, and so we then suffer the consequences. The giving us over language is there in verse 24 and verse 26 and verse 28. And so God's normal way of judging the world is to let us go our own miserable way. I mean, how long do you keep the teenager come adult from, how long do you keep them from their own mistakes? And at what point do you have to let them go? Now, this doesn't seem so bad to us, this judgment. Is that bad judgment? Well, if we don't think sin is bad, we don't think it's bad. But be assured, God's common grace and his daily work of restraining sin in our world is a huge blessing. And one, again, he receives no thanks for. If God leaves us to ourselves, all hell breaks loose. And you might think of the most godless places on earth. Godless, we call it that for a reason. I love Mongolia as a nation. Um, we spent several years there, but after hundreds of years of Buddhism and 70 years of um, atheist Soviet rule, I've never lived anywhere darker than, I, than Mongolia. For hundreds of years, the door to God was being deliberately shut. And God allowed that in his judgment on the nation. God kindly, however, sent messages to Mongolia throughout those centuries. When those little flickers of light were brought in, they were found and extinguished. God let them go their own way. In the 1990s, God sent more messengers. And so as the nation opens and the church spreads, the country is finally getting up off its knees. If Australia is a nice place to live where people generally live in peace, living without guns and barred windows and widespread injustice, poverty and fear, and if society works well because we still have a relatively high level of trust as we do, thank God he's restrained evil to the extent he has. But the West, if it doesn't turn back from its turning away, will become darker as night follows day. Cities, households, individuals are already feeling the consequences of secularism. Paul gives three examples next of how spurning God leads to self-inflicted destruction. So he's given the principle just now, and now he gives three areas of life where this can be seen. First, what happens when we exchange God's glory for images, verses 22 to 23? Verse 22 says, although they claim to be wise... Have you noticed the latest research justifies everything we do in our society, even though you come to diametrically opposed conclusions, depending on which research you're looking for? Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? For images, not even the real thing. Images made, handmade, to merely look like a mere mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul's language is contrasting the immortal, glorious God with things that aren't even very real. We are made in God's image, but what the world worships is less than humanity itself, usually. The house, the lifestyle, the career, the projection of success, the child we design and push to make us proud... Our security not provided by God, but by dollars, more and more dollars. Now, these are some Western gods that are all around us, but the world's fear and worship are all misdirected, if not the glory of the immortal God. 
When we pretend God is not on his throne, chaos reigns. When the world's true monarch is rejected, we end up in a royal mess. Our next exchange of God's ways for our own is in verses 24 to 27. And that is exchanging natural for unnatural sexual acts. And again, I recognize the sensitivity of this. Why does Paul move into sexuality? Of all topics he could have addressed here, I take it because he's working from the basic creation foundations of our existence. So first we saw the exchange of worshipping the creator for created things, and now still in Genesis 1 and 2, this distortion of basic created design. This fundamental design of humans in creation reflects God's wisdom and what leads to human flourishing. Made as sexual beings right from the beginning, a man and woman are designed with physical and emotional complementarity for intimacy, for creating families with complementary parenting. A dad is different from a mum. Has also been, uh, and for societies as well, to flourish. But ever since Genesis 3, not since the 1960s, since Genesis 3, this law of nature, this truth has also been exchanged. For what? For almost anything goes. And so the sexual ethic, it seems, in our age is to just enjoy lusty, confusing, heartbreaking, temporary relationships between men and women, women and women, men and men, and more options that Paul doesn't go into here. I'll let God's word do the talking from verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Okay, let's, okay, you want to go? Go. It is, as I I take it, a sign of God's developed judgment on Australia, that restrictions and moral limits are increasingly going. What was met with social shame to restrain behaviour is now promoted with pride. Brothels legalised, fornication and sodomy we call liberation. Aiming for popularity, our presidents and prime ministers lead the march in this direction. God is giving us over to the way we want to go as a nation. Verse 26, as we'll see on TV if we watch it, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. What's the due penalty for their error in Paul's mind? He doesn't say, but it seems the act, acts lead to their own harmful penalties it seems like it's not going to generally be a healthy way to live. The Bible would have us expect harm, spiritual and mental and emotional brokenness that goes with it. And so, friends, we want to be a church that sees sexuality the way God does, while loving and supporting those who may struggle in this area. And I take it all of us have struggled in this area, actually, whether it's living as a celibate single or living with sexual temptation in marriage living with same-sex attraction. We need God's guidance and his Spirit's help to be holy in this area of sexuality. 
It's important to know as well there is forgiveness in this area just as there is in any other area. There is grace. There is a community to support and help. Lastly, in verses 28 to 32, the world exchanges knowing God for deprived thoughts and actions. And it seems like this is every other category Paul's just lumping together. Once the genie's out of the bottle, there's almost nothing a human won't do. And so we don't feel superior or judgmental as we read this. Uh, David next week will preach from Romans 2, reminding us that the things we see wrong in others, we've got three fingers pointing back at ourselves. You, therefore, who pass judgment, don't you do the same things? We all have a sin problem. And so this isn't for judgmental Christianity, but to call sin, sin, and righteousness, righteousness. Verse 28, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so again God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They become become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's scam the new disability insurance scheme. New scheme, new way of doing evil. They disobey their parents. That's an interesting one. I'll pause a moment there. I've got two of my kids here. But to the youth, I say, not directing this at my kids, the disobeying parents is listed here among some pretty awful things. All sin is serious. I think Paul's listing worse and better sins. There there is a, a degree of sin. Uh, Disobeying parents may be what your friends do, but disobeying parents is, again, twisting this created order for your household and what is given for your good. And parents, having God's expectation that your kids obey your instructions makes this sin in their life less inevitable. In this age of really addictive devices, it's a struggle. It's a struggle for me as an adult. In the world they live in with destructive ideologies just forced down their throats. Parenting can be really hard. More and more parents give up expecting obedience, moving into negotiation, bribery. But seeing kids obey wise boundaries is worth persisting in. As a church too, we can seek to support each other in this for the sake of kids and parents. Uh, no, none of us pretend this is easy. Uh, Verse 30, Paul concludes his brutal, honest, diagnostic summary from verse 31. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Adding sin to sin. And that's our world, isn't it? Doesn't that describe our, our culture right now? that the wrong isn't bad enough, now it's becoming socially evil not to jump on and commend and praise, approve, support, endorse the wrong. Put it on your corporate banners or else. Scripture is a very fresh, very contemporary source for us of wisdom. Several years ago while serving as a pastor, I really wrestled with the justice of God. I lived in a beautiful country town where people just seemed so nice and friendly, a strong community spirit, uh, very kind to us. 
Do they really need to be judged, God? Is Christianity relevant? Do they really need this gospel? And yet when you scratch beneath the surface, you see these kinds of images emerging. Broken relationships, people not talking to each other for decades, sexual affairs that leave families broken, people harmed with sexual violence, kids not happy to go home, feeling unsafe. Romans 1 helps me to see sin from God's point of view. And I just have to take God at his word, that he's right about us, more than we are right about ourselves. To acknowledge God and thank him is really not too much for God to ask. And to see the damage sin does to ourselves and the world really perhaps should be plainer to our eyes than it is. Sin ruins everything. And Christians need to see that so that we can point our friends to the one who saves us from it. That we become sure of the illness so that we become sure of the cure. And I think this is one of our biggest weaknesses as a church. God loves you. Jesus saves you. So what? Who needs God to love me? Who needs Jesus to save me? If we're not also saying the problem, you've got a sin problem. We've got a sin problem. Only Jesus can solve it. For there are only two ways to live. Godlessness, self-rule, self-harm and wrath. I read an article in the paper this week to self-harm among young women in particular, teenagers, but boys as well. Something's going wrong. Or on the other hand, we have God, righteousness, grace and peace. We choose our own royal mess or we ask the king of righteousness to please reign over us. We can be comforted God has seen it all before and has given this world not only the diagnosis, but the diagnosis in order that we be cured. In his kindness, God offers the world exactly what we need in the Lord Jesus.